Well, if you would again uh, take out your Bible, and let's turn to Genesis chapter 11, and we will be reading verse 10 through chapter 12, verse 1. Genesis chapter 11, starting in verse 10. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Pay careful attention to the reading of it. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and he had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Ru. And Peleg lived after he fathered Ru 209 years, and he had other sons and daughters. When Ru had lived 32 years, he fathered Serug. And Ru lived after he fathered Serug 207 years, and he had other sons and daughters. When Serug had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Serug lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years, and he had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years, and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah, in the land of his kindred, and Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. The grass withers The flower falls, but the word of our God remains forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are struck as we read this, the promise, the the line that comes that ultimately leads us to Christ. And yet we're also struck by how much your people had to live by faith. 
And Father, we pray that as we study this, that You would be with this, Your servant, that we may, it may be explained to all of us in a way that we can appreciate the faith by which we live. That in fact, seeing is not believing. But we live by faith in You. That Your promises are true and sure. That You do not diverge from right or from left. That You can draw straight lines with crooked sticks, as it were. Help us to appreciate that. And may we give You all glory in this. We thank you. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, from the very beginning of Genesis, uh, we have seen God working out His plan of redemption in the promise to crush Satan's head through the seed of promise. What we come to today is a wonderful demonstration of God's unswerving faithfulness as seen in the lives of the promised line of Shem and most particularly in the life of Abram and his wife Sarai. God's promises are sure, but sometimes you and I are slow to believe them. We struggle to see how it's all going to work out. Particularly in light of all of the evil which exists in the world. All the suffering which we may personally be being experiencing. We're prone to ask how God's servant should suffer so with disease or heartache, depression, the atrocities of war or whatever other sort of suffering which we may experience. And we should understand that these sort of ponderings are nothing new for God's people. They're not unique to our time. Uh, They have been in every time. God's people have always faced trials. God's people have always had great difficulties. So God's promises appear to us at times to be threatened. We wonder, how will God bring about this plan of redemption? How can God redeem such a wicked world? Is there, any, is there anywhere or anyhow this, the gospel can move forth? Nobody's going to believe this stuff. Why do the wicked prosper while the faithful suffer? Abraham, who is today introduced into the narrative, surely faced all of these questions. And so we begin again our study in a new section of Genesis. Again, begins with a very familiar refrain. These are the generations of. Now as we think back over uh, what has come before, we think back to the account at Babel, we have seen how humanity had fallen back into idolatry. They'd fallen back into unbelief. As we recall, the people were seeking to make a name for themselves. They were, had done just as earlier generations had done, had fallen away from God into great depravity. Like all the events of Genesis up to this point, God's grace supersedes human sin and ensures 
blessings which God had promised from the beginning. God had entered into a covenant of grace with mankind, promising that He would bring redemption, that He would bring salvation. But things seemed bleak. Things were bleak after the garden, weren't they? When man fell into sin. They were bleak again prior to the flood when wickedness uh, reigned over the earth. And it was bleak yet again at Babel as mankind had again moved away from the worship of God. And yet, over and over again, God proves His faithfulness. His unswerving faithfulness to His covenant promises. Despite the complete lostness and rebellion of humanity, God is faithful not only to His elect, but also indeed to the nations. And so what we have, uh, where we begin now in chapter 11, is again another presentation of the genealogical record here of Shem. But this time, it comes to us in a different form. Now, whereas in chapter 10, uh, the various other families of Shem are mentioned and listed And then the line of promise, you might remember, is sort of dropped. Here, the genealogical record focuses on that line of promise which leads to Abraham. Now, you'll know that the record here is like the earlier genealogical record back in chapter 5. That is the Sethite line. The Sethite line in chapter 5 records the transition from Adam to Noah and the flood. Here, the genealogy is sketched from the time of the flood down to Abraham. And so there's a clear line being drawn in Genesis from Adam to Noah to Abraham. Now, there are a number of similarities to note between the Sethite genealogy in chapter 5 and the Shemite one here. Uh, There's vocabulary, there's literary patterns But there are also some key differences we want to note as well. For instance, unlike the Shemite genealogy, which we're looking at here, the Sethite one in chapter 5 adds together the total age of the patriarch and thus announces in the end the age at his death. This addition perhaps underscores the full and complete lives of the antediluvian generation, those who had come before the flood. Whereas the post-Diluvian people suffer from a reduction in their lifespan. For Shem, for instance, only lives about two-thirds of the life of Noah. And then Arpachshad lives about two-thirds of Shem's life. So people are living shorter and shorter and shorter lives until it settles out into what becomes more uh, no, or more accustomed, we're more accustomed to as well. In addition, the record here omits the refrain, and he died. It doesn't say that here, where it does in the Sethite. The focus seems to be on birth and not death. Interesting to note this. Perhaps this is to alert the reader to the hope of eternal life, which is yet to come. You see, the elect of this age may live shorter lives, but we still look forward to eternal life through the Redeemer, which this record is leading us to. And so verse 10 says this, These 
are the generations of Shem. Again, I want to draw you back to the larger context. The builders of the Tower of Babel considered to make a name for themselves. Now the Hebrew word for name is Shem. We pointed out last time that the Babel builders certainly got a name for themselves, confused, which is the meaning of the Hebrew word Babel. Here we have the generation of Shem. That is the elect line of God's people, the name. This name, which comes down through Shem, will be an everlasting name. For this is the name from which the faithful descendant Abraham will come, who will be made into a great nation, and from whom all the nations of the world will be blessed. And so the word and the name Shem is key. This is a key thing. It links the pursuit of sinful men and their attempt to make their own name with the faithful name which God will give His chosen line which leads ultimately to the anointed one of Israel, that is the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the one who has been bestowed with a name which is above every name. So this is, speaking of, of course, the promised seed. Now, typically, uh, typical to what is done throughout Genesis, the line of Shem had been distinguished in the table of nations by placing him last on the list. Shem is the progenitor of Eber, from which the Hebrew people come. Now there's nothing really more said to distinguish Shem. His role was to commence the era that followed after the flood. This is seen with the announcement that when he was 100 years old, he fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. And so Shem fathers Arpachshad at 100 years old, and then he lives another 500 years. Now it's worth noting that Abraham is also 100 years old when he fathers the appointed son, Isaac. And incidentally, Ishmael was born when Abraham was 86. So again, there's this dwindling lifespan among the patriarchs after the flood. Now, also in the genealogical record, there's mention of other sons and daughters. This shows God's blessing in an abundance of children, an issue, by the way, which Abram and Sarai will have to grapple with themselves because they don't have children for such a long time. But none of these other children are named. It shows the selective nature of this genealogy, which is to say that the focus is on the chosen line. Now, it's also worth noting the time span. Most likely, the period from Shem to the birth of Abram is a very long time, but which has been condensed into just a few verses. If you were to trace out the time frames here listed, you would realize that as it's written, it seems that Shem would outlive Abram by about 35 years. Now this may seem like a problem in the text. It is, of course, certainly possible that Shem lived through the flood and then lived to see Abraham and even Isaac born. That's a possibility. But it's more, I think it's more likely that what we have here is not an exhaustive record. Just as the record in chapter 5 is not exhaustive. 
In other words, there are purposeful gaps in the record with the generations being left out for a variety of reasons. And so there only appears to be a compressed time frame, but in actuality would be a much longer time frame. That's not really a problem either way. But you might, and you might wonder why this matters or why I would even bring this up and come to the conclusion that I do. Well, the reason why this matters and why we have to deal with this and why also I've come to the conclusion is that there is an apparent problem with this genealogy. And I say an apparent problem. And this shows up in Luke's genealogy and also in the Septuagint. So you see there's an extra generation given in Luke. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and then Luke chapter 3, which follows the Septuagint, includes a man named Canaan, who is listed as the son of Arpachshad, and is the father of Shelah. So this additional name then rounds out the generations from Shem to Terah as ten, just as the Sethite genealogy was ten generations from Adam to Noah. Now on the one hand, if the Masoretic text is correct, this might alert the reader to the tenth generation who is anticipated, and that of course would be Abram. Just as righteous Noah was the tenth generation listed after Adam. On the other hand, Luke's genealogy and that of the Septuagint might simply be completing the tenth generation by inserting one of the missing individuals, which would have come from a different source. What I'm suggesting is that both are correct. Because for someone to be a father in the Hebrew mind did not require that they be a son of direct descent. In other words, a grandson, a great-grandson, or a great-great-grandson. All of these would be considered to be sons. Now this becomes more apparent when you consider that Abraham is the father of nations. That is what his name means. In fact, your father... And my father in the faith is Abraham. And so it seems like a textual problem can be solved simply by understanding that there may be other generations in between which the Septuagint and Luke's Gospel supplies as an addition, additional name. So far from uh, uh, undermining the trustworthiness of the text, I think this actually helps support it. For the purpose of the list is not to be exhaustive, but to alert the reader to the line of promise. That's his point. And so we come now then to the final generation on the list in verse 26. And we read this. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now, like the Sethite list, which ends with Noah and his three sons, Terah is listed with his three sons. And you'll see, too, that Abram is listed first. But this does not necessarily mean that he was the oldest. And there are reasons to believe he wasn't the oldest. But, because, uh, but the reason he's listed first is because most of the focus of the rest of the narrative of Genesis is about Abram and his children. And so this is the reason he's listed in this way. Now the reason that Abram was most likely not the oldest actually comes from Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7. 
He said that Abraham went out from Haran after his father died. Now we know that Abraham was 75 years old when he left Haran to go to Canaan, and that Terah lived to be 205. But this would mean that there's 60 years missing from Terah's life, if Abraham's the oldest. Calvin argues, I'd say pretty persuasively, that it seems most likely that Abraham was born in Terah's 130th year, and thus we can understand that Terah began having sons when he was 70. He began having sons, and that Abram wasn't necessarily the oldest son. And so just as we've seen prior in Genesis, again, there's a climax in the genealogy. And there's a naming of three sons. Noah had three sons, Shem, the cursed Ham, and Japheth. And here, Terah has three sons, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. So again, there's a focusing and there's a narrowing on particular members of these triads of sons. Shem and Abram are both prominent members of their households. Both represented the line of promise. And again, we trace the golden thread through which the Messiah, the promised one, the Redeemer, was to come. So this record of the generations now draws the focus even tighter on the promised line of Abram. But we will see that there seems to be a threat to God's promise, specifically or seemingly from God's own providences. And so again, uh, come to verse 27, and there's a, there's a repetition of the three sons. Uh, but this time uh, starts again with that familiar refrain, which introduces us to that new section. Now these are the generations of. Now, we are all, also told of Haran having a son named Lot. Lot, of course, will figure into the story as the, the companion of Abram. So he comes up more later in the narrative. We're also told that Haran died in the presence of his father, Terah, in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. Haran evidently also had two daughters, Milcah and Iscah. Both Abram and Nahor take wives. Abram marries Sarai, and Nahor marries Milcah, his niece, the daughter of Haran. Now, there are not very many women ever mentioned in in the various genealogies. But, when they are mentioned, we ought to take close note. We should pay attention. For the reason that they show up there. In this case, Milcah is significant because she was the grandmother of Rebekah, who later will marry Isaac. Now, at this point, Lot is the only male heir mentioned from Terah's family. And, as mentioned, he also will become the companion of Abram in his early travels. Now, it will be revealed later in chapter 22 that Milcah and Nahor have eight sons, and that Nahor's concubine also bore four more sons. And so there is fruitfulness in that family. We also learn that Haran had died, though we don't know how he died. We're only told that he died in his father's presence. Now, consider this 
for a moment. Terah had three sons. One of them is now dead. Lot is the only male heir so far. Another son has married his niece, Terah's granddaughter, and it is curious to note that when the family migrates to Haran, this part of the family does not seem to go with them. And then, in verse 30, we have this shocking admission. Sarai was barren. She had no child. This is not simply a statement of the fact that as of yet, she hasn't had children. This is a statement of the fact that she was unable to have children. Sarai, it seems, was sterile. This is the reason for the repetition. It is being emphasized. She was incapable of bearing children. Now notice too that Sarai's lineage is not mentioned. As it was for her sister-in-law, slash niece, Milcah. Now of course we learn later that she was in fact the half-sister of Abram. Both were the children of Terah, but by different mothers. But here nothing is said. But back to the point. Sarai was considered to be the weak link in what was supposed to be a chain of blessing. Her not being able to bear children was a devastating reality for her and from Abram. Not only because she was not able to become a mom, but because in the ancient world, wealth and inheritance was not only determined by how many goods you had, or how many animals you had, or how much money you had, but also by how many children you had. In this sense, Abram and Sarai were utterly destitute. And they would have been seen by Terah as a dead end. The only hope for heirs would lie with Nahor, any children he might have, and with Lot. Now, no doubt, the barrenness of Sarai would have impacted Abram's faith particularly as he leaves the country and his people, and he goes to the promised land, to the land of Canaan, and he's surrounded by paganism, he's surrounded by wickedness, and all of the increase of the cursed line of Canaan. Remember, we've already learned about that this was the people. He, He goes live among the people who specifically had been cursed by God because of the actions of Ham. So he's surrounded by all of their wickedness. They're increasing. They're multiplying. They're seemingly fruitful. And he's not. He doesn't have an heir. He doesn't have children. Abram would go to this land. He would see the multiplication of evil. All while he himself has no child. Nor does he have any prospects for having children. The revelation of Sarai's barrenness is made even more stark when you consider that only a few verses later we read of God's promise to Abram when he says, And I will make you a great nation. How is he going to be made a great nation if he and his wife couldn't have any children? How are these promises ever going to be realized? 
have to understand that the barrenness of Sarai will play a huge role in the events which are to take place moving forward. And undoubtedly, Abram and Sarai suffered greatly through this season of barrenness. Surrounded by wickedness, surrounded by depravity, which was only increasing again on the earth. And here, here they are. They're supposed to be the, the progenitor of a new nation. All the blessings for all the nations are supposed to come from them. And yet nothing is happening to advance this promise. In fact, we know that Abram struggled with this. For in chapter 15, when he's reminded again of God's promises and of the great reward, he then asks, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. I have no children. How do you, how do you intend to accomplish the things which you're promising, God? My only heir is a foreigner living with me. I have nothing. And yet you say a nation's supposed to come from me. God had promised that he would bring blessing through Abram, but without children, this was an impossibility. And so it seemed in the life of Abram that there was a collision between the promises of God and the providences of God. These two things seem to be standing in opposition to one another in his life. And we understand this, don't we? Are there not times in our own lives where it appears that God's providence, that is, the circumstances in which we find ourselves in, are at odds with God's promises in His Word? Don't we wonder at times how God could place us in these seemingly unsolvable places in life? Much of our suffering fall into this category, don't they? Why, for instance, can this Christian suffer such misery as a child of God and as an heir of the promise? How can we live as Christians when the very thing He has called us to is threatened by the world? We must keep in mind that the promises of God and the providences of God do not contradict one another. They are not working in opposition to one another. In fact, as we'll see, God often uses His providences, these circumstances He places His people in, God uses His providences to demonstrate His power and the absolute sureness of His promises. And He does this such that all that you and I could do is sit back with our jaws on the floor and say, Wow, God is very great. You see, Sarah and Abraham, as we will learn, will have to live by faith. They would have to trust God. They would have to take God at His word. Not because of what they had seen. In fact, for much of the time, they will have nothing to see. They would have to live by the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Having faith, then, is living by and believing that which we read and that which we hear, but not what we see. If seeing was was all it took, then it would not really be faith. 
This is what Jesus means when He says to Thomas, You have believed because you've seen Me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. There are plenty of others who have seen and yet still don't believe. Living by faith, of course, will prove to be difficult for Abram and Sarai. Which means they're not different from us. Because living by faith is difficult for us, too, isn't it? In order for Sarai to have children, she was going to need help from God. Something supernatural was going to have to take place. God was going to have to intervene in order to change her situation. And in so doing, Sarai will become a shining example of God's unswerving faithfulness and amazing grace. For she will be renamed, won't she? She will be called Sarah, which means princess. And she will be instrumental in being the ancestor of kings, of the nations. And thus, ultimately, she will live up to her name. Because God changes the situation for her. We read on in verse 31 that Terah then took Abram, Lot, and Sarai and left for Ur of the Chaldeans and headed to the land of Canaan. But they only get as far as Haran and then they settle there. Now, Stephen, in his speech in Acts chapter 7, informs us that God had called Abram out of Ur. And we read, we read later that God calls him again to leave Haran and go to Canaan. So here is Abram living in Ur of the Chaldeans, which was probably in southern Iraq, along, along the Euphrates River. And interestingly enough, the name Ur means light or flame. Now, uh, Chaldeans, don't, they don't arise until much later in history. They're simply mentioned at this point to orient the reader to the area in Mesopotamia in which this place was. So Abram, he's visited by God. He's told to go to Canaan. This was the place that his family was to settle. And as we learn, God was going to do great things through him. But we read here too that Terah took Abram along with the rest of the family. And then they only got as far as Haran. What we might take from this is that the migration toward Canaan was, was not uh, simply a decision of Abram. It was actually a family decision. It says that, Abram, or that Terah took Abram and the others to Haran. Now keep in mind that these people are all poly, polytheistic pagans. Abram was met by the one true God, and he was supposed to follow him. He was supposed to leave his country. He was supposed to leave his kindred. He was supposed to leave his father's house. But he doesn't right away. Abram was, like us, slow to believe. He was still under his father's authority who took them to Haran, but no further. In fact, Abram remains with him until Terah dies. And then finally he leaves, along with his companion and nephew, Lot. 
So the allegiance that Abram had to his father's household was going to need to, to loosen. He was going to need to separate more to enter into God's blessings and promises. And so what is recorded here is the human perspective on the migration of Abram from Ur. The divine perspective is seen later in chapter 15 and verse 7. I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Although Abram was, appears to be slow to believe, God used this pagan polytheist, Terah, as the instrument to remove Abram from Ur. As he took Abram, but only as far as Haran. And the account of Terah then ends with his obituary of sorts. In verse 32, we read his days were 205 years, and then he died in Haran. The death of his earthly father then opens the door to Abram obeying his heavenly father. And as we read in chapter 12, again of the divine call. Now it is, it is interesting question to ask, was this the second call or was this simply a reminder of the call he had received before when he was in Ur? That's not clear. Either way, we need to understand that he had been slow to follow, but now he's compelled to go. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, from your kindred, from your father's house, to the land that I will show you. Now you'll note here, there's a major shift. A major shift happening in the narrative. Whereas in Genesis, we have spent 11 chapters moving quickly through thousands upon thousands of years of history, having been compacted. Now the narrative is going to be focused on the life of Abraham and his children, his family. In fact, the whole rest of the Old Testament focuses on this family and the coming of the Messiah. And the events which took place that lead up to that. The divine call of Abram sets the stage for the themes which will come later in Genesis. God was going to work through him as hard as that would have been for him to believe at that moment. Remember, his wife doesn't have any children. He, all he can go on is what God has told him. But he was going to need to trust God. He was going to need to trust and obey. We know, we know that hymn, don't we? Trust and obey, for there is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Abraham was going to have to trust and obey. Believing God is doing the things which God said to do. Delighting in His law. Seeing His word, as the psalmist says, as the lamp unto my feet and the light to my path. Not because I see the evidence before me of why I should follow, but because God said. And so I must believe. We read later that At 75 years old, Abram left Haran and went to Canaan to settle, just as God had told him. But it will be another 25 years. Another 25 years before he sees this child which had been promised. This is what Abraham had to live with. This was living by faith. 
It would be 25 years before he holds the child which had been promised to him. Abraham had to live by faith. You and I have to live by faith as well. At the Tower of Babel, the people were seeking to make a name for themselves. God's name, though, is to be great throughout the earth. He was going to demonstrate His power. God was going to make a name for Himself by making a name of the most unlikely of characters. Abram. Who's childless. Whose wife is incapable of having children. Even when the situation seemed the most bleak, a man who had no prospects of having an heir, having been told to leave his country, to leave his kindred, to leave his father's house, to go to some strange land, he was going to have to believe God would provide for him. Abraham was called to take a risk to leave the comforts of his earthly inheritance by faith. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, left the heavenly places to take on flesh. God became man so that He would demonstrate His power as the promised blessing for the nations. You see, what Abraham and the other patriarchs and the prophets and the kings of the Old Covenant did as types and shadows, Jesus accomplishes in the whole. He was the one that all of these events, all of the Old Testament events are pointing to and leading to. The childlessness of one woman in the Old Testament who God supernaturally gives a child to leads to our Savior. God is demonstrating His power. His faithfulness. His unswerving swerving faithfulness. Jesus came to shed His blood on the cross so that you and I could be healed, so our sins could be forgiven. And it is by His resurrection from the dead that we, you and I have life. What Jesus has done is, is give to you an inheritance and a promise. A promise that you don't see with your eyes, do you? And yet you look forward to. Hebrews 11.9 states that by faith Abraham went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. They didn't live by faith. They didn't, they, they, it said, but he did this because he was looking forward to the city which has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. This is what we look forward to too, isn't it? Don't, do we not live in a foreign land and yet we look forward to that city whose foundations, who, uh, that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God? We too. We, you can't see that city and yet you look forward to that city, don't you? Humanity of this world is looking to build for themselves their own little kingdom, like the, like the tower builders, their own city where they can make for themselves a great name. This is what simple mankind does. But we, like Abraham, are looking forward to that greater city, that is, the heavenly city. The city whose builder is not man, but God. In Christ, you and I are heirs of a spiritual kingdom, a kingdom which will come down in the new heavens and new earth. And in this sense, all we do is look forward. We look forward to that which is not seen. And we look back on Christ and the fulfillment of God's promises, but we look forward yet to the promises which are to come. But it's hard, isn't it? 
It's hard. Because we want to see it. We want to to touch it, don't we? We want to feel it. We want evidence. It's hard to believe. And yet we must do so by faith. Oh, may God give us eyes to see and ears to hear that we may trust in the promises of God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you that your promises are sure. That you do not swerve to the left or to the right. That we can take you at your word. And when you say that there is to come a new heavens and new earth, when you say that there is a city with foundations whose designer and builder is God, when you say that all the dead will be raised, when you say that all of our sins have been forgiven, that we've been made new creatures, that we will enjoy fellowship and blessing forevermore. Help us to have faith, to rest in You, to believe Your promises. We are like the man who cries out to Jesus, I believe, help me with my unbelief. For we suffer from the same as Abram. We are slow. Help us, O God, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.